Today we're continuing our sermon series through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. And uh, last week we, we noted that when Paul's prayer, he gives thanks that God has given them every spiritual gift and that they have everything they need for the work of ministry. And I talked about those, uh, the gifts and how that engenders hope so that we can, we can face whatever God has before us, whatever challenges lie before us. There's one other thing that I didn't talk about last week because I was going to talk about it this week and um, that gives us strength as we face the future. In verse 9 last week, we read it, it's, it, Paul says, God is faithful and by him you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Fellowship of the son, which means that we are not alone no matter what we're going through. Even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we are not alone. God is with us. We have fellowship. And this deep fellowship with each other, means with, with Christ, means that we have fellowship with each other. So John Boisvelt, I hate to pick him out, but he's right here and he's handy. And uh, John, you know, you, you and I are friends, but there is that deeper tie that we have because we both have fellowship in Christ. And uh, that deeper tie that, that binds us together. And the same is true with other folks that we know in Christ. Uh, I, two weeks ago, I was at the Society of Christian Ethics meeting, and I ran into this man named Tobias Winwright. He used to teach at St. Louis University. He's a Roman Catholic theological ethicist, and he now teaches in, uh, in Ireland. He just moved over there. Really good guy, and I hadn't seen him for since before the pandemic, and it was just so good to see him. And we're friends, but there's also that deeper tie, fellowship in Christ, that unites us and pulls us together. And that's why what Paul says next, our scripture lesson for today, what Paul says next in, to the Corinthians is so very jarring. Hear the word of God as it is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 10. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same purpose. And you know if Paul is begging, is the word that she said, uh, that Kellyanne said, Paul is begging them to be of the same mind and in agreement and that there be no divisions you know that what's coming is trouble. And so the trouble comes. Verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or... I belong to Christ. The last people are the non-denominational people. <laughs> I only belong to Christ. And then Paul asks this, verse 13. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the house of Stephanus. But beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, to, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross might be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. May God bless this reading of Holy Scripture. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us pray. O oh Lord our God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Paul begins with the question, Has Christ been divided? It is a rhetorical question. And the answer to that question is no, because we share deep fellowship in Christ. Christ has not been divided. But in another very real sense, in that Corinthian church, the answer is yes. Some Corinthians are going around saying, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas, I belong to Jesus. What do we make of all of this? Well, let me tell you how I sort this out. And the first thing I want to say is kind of a hard thing, but I, I, I think it's true. And, and that is that divisions are kind of inevitable. They're inevitable. They're built into the human com condition. We, even in that first century church, how, how big do you think that community was that they've got people who are not talking to each other? They're quarreling because I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas. I think divisions are inevitable. Human traditions or beliefs about what it means to follow Jesus are just, we can't, we can't be Christian without them. We pass the faith on by reading Scripture, but nobody reads the Scripture as a blank slate. We always read it with the eyes of those who taught us how to read Scripture. And, and we in the Presbyterian tradition have this book of confession that formally uh, lists the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Ecumenical Creeds, and then creeds from the Reformation era, and then modern creeds of the 20th century of various types. But nobody reads it in a blank slate, even, even in a church that has no creeds at all and prides themselves on that. They're reading it in, in, through the, some lens that has been passed down. They've been taught to read the Scripture in a certain way. So I think... In some sense, the divisions are inevitable. But the second thing I want to say is that the divisions can be a gift. It can be a wonderful gift. Wonderful gift. My understanding of Christianity has been greatly helped by the natural law tradition in Reform and in, in Roman Catholic thinking. Nat natural law tradition. Uh, particularly, I've been helped by a woman named Jean Porter, who teaches at Notre Dame. You can look her up. Her books, I will tell you, are really, really dense. So I, go ahead. If you want to read her books, uh, they're great, but they're not easy. Uh, but she's helped me to see the natural law tradition started in the 11th century. And it was a reflection upon Romans chapter 2, where, where Paul is saying that the, the Jews know that they've fallen short of the glory of God and need a Savior because they have, God gave them the law. They know they have not kept the law. So they know that they've fallen short of God's glory. And Gentiles, Gentiles know that they've fallen short of the glory of God. How is this? They, they don't have God's law, but 
Paul says, God wrote the law on their hearts so that they have a conscience. Everyone has a conscience. Everyone has the capacity to know right from wrong. So even if they don't have God's law, they know that they've sinned and fallen short. And starting with these verses in Romans chapter 2, natural law theologians uh, began investigating about how, what does it mean to say that human beings, every human being you'll ever meet, has a natural moral sense. And, and this I found very, very helpful in thinking about my, in thinking through my theology, because some of the theology that I grew up with said that, um, that all moral thoughts are kind of wiped out by sin. And uh, I was kind of raised in a tradition that said that people don't know right or wrong unless they're Christian, and then they're morally enlivened, and then they, there's a reformation and renewal, a moral renewal. And I, I think that's true. When you become a Christian, you, you should begin to recognize how, how we are prone to idolatries that, that hurt and oppress us and others. And as a Christian, we should be called to a way of life modeled by Jesus Christ, a life of servanthood. Uh, the attitude of humility begins to make sense, which is a virtue not found in any ancient Greek, uh, any ancient text, period. It's only found in the New Testament. As the Christian, we're called to love, and we should be better at it. But I also know as a Christian that what Martin Luther said is also true. He said that we are both justified and sinners. Christians are justified and sinners. I'd give you the Latin word for it, but I'd butcher it. And uh, you, you don't... The Lutherans have a point there. And so as I've been studying and thinking theologically, I've been helped by the natural law tradition. But I've also been helped by Lutheran insight that we're still sinners. I, I recognize that in myself. And so while I might not be as optimistic as some Catholic natural law theologians, I think... I think they're right to acknowledge this thing that Paul points out. Everyone has a moral sense. God wrote the law in their hearts. And it's been helped, I've been helped by this. The diversity of the church is a gift if we can receive it that way. The diversity of the church can be a gift in another way. In 2015, uh, Sally and I were, right after the embargo on Cuba and the travel restrictions were lifted, Sally and I were among a group of, of Presbyterians that went down and met with pr Cuban Presbyterians in Havana and at the seminary in Matanzas. And it was a really, really interesting trip. And to see and hear the stories of faithfulness of those Cuban Christians before the, re the religious life was uh, made more free just a couple of years before, there, there was one church that I heard about it's Crossroads Presbyterian Church. It started as a mission church of the Southern Presbyterian Church. And this church had a school and it had a hospital and this little church building. And when the communists took over, they took over the school and they took over the hospital. And all that was left was the church. And nobody came to church except for this one elder and his family. And for 30 years, 30 years, they would go there once a week and read Scripture and sing a hymn. 30 years. And what I learned is that today, people sit by the windows so they can hear and listen to the service because they don't have enough views. The faithfulness of the Christians during that time. They don't have enough pastors. 
It was, what a gift to hear that. And talking with him, you know, the Cuban experience of the embargo was different. I, I had not known what that was like for them. And they were so happy about the normalization, uh, much happier than the Cuban immigrants who came to Florida who were very unhappy about it. Uh, one of the things they, that while they're happy about the normalization of relations at the time, they worried about what increased tourism would do to their health care system. Because Cuba at the time, compared to most third world countries, and it is a third world country, I mean, it's really poor. And you hear about all the old cars, but what you don't hear about is that outside of Havana, people are still traveling by horse and buggy. And um, they're concerned because their doctors can make more waiting tables than as doctors. And they're thinking, we're not going to have a health care system. It was a gift to hear their perception. The church is a gift to us. The differences, different perspectives, things I hadn't thought about, it's a gift if we're willing to receive it. But there's no denying that the diversity of the church can also be a challenge. I remember as a young pastor, I was, I was asked if I would lead worship with my guitar and with, uh, there were three of us that were supposed to lead worship for a youth worship service in Lynchburg, Virginia. And so we had a meeting and uh, two folks showed up uh, and we began planning out what we were going to do and what music we were going to play at that worship service. And there was a third person who came to our second planning meeting. And uh, we, we said, well, this is what we're thinking about doing. Uh, we're thinking about this song and this song and we're also thinking this other song. And, and, uh, and he said, well, the Holy Spirit is telling me that you're all wrong. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's telling me that, that we need to be singing different songs. And uh, I was like, well, who are you? Uh, and I, I was kind of taken aback by that. It was like, the Holy Spirit's telling you, well, what, the Spirit doesn't speak to me too? Or uh, We prayed before we did this, and uh, like we open all meetings with prayer, and, and he's like, no, the Holy Spirit's telling me. He's pretty emphatic. And I told a friend of mine, who's an Episcopal minister, I said, you know, it kind of irritated me. And he said, well, of course it irritated you, Ray. You're a Presbyterian. <laughs> and he's charismatic. The diversity of the church can be a challenge. I have a friend, James Calvin Davis teaches religion at Middlebury College in Vermont. And he's written a lot. He's an ordained Presbyterian minister. He went to Union Seminary. Then he did his PhD at UVA. And he is one of the smartest people I've ever known. He's just such a great guy. I got to see him at the Society of Christian Ethics as well. He's written a book called Forbearance. Forbearance. And he notes a lot of the letters... Paul calls us to exercise forbearance with one another. Bear with one another, he says to the Ephesians and Colossians and others. He says, Christians do not create unity, we confess it. And forbearance is an active commitment to maintain Christian community through disagreement as an extension of other Christian virtues and as a reflection of unity in Christ that binds the church together.
together. And he says forbearance is related to other Christian virtues like love and patience and humility and friendship and hope. Importance as forbearance is, he acknowledges, it's not a panacea for disagreement. It, it doesn't dissolve disagreement. You still have disagreement. That's why you need forbearance. He acknowledges that there are two enduring challenges to forbearance. Two limits that forbearance runs up against. One is truth and the other is justice. And certainly there are heresies that contradict central church teaching and there are beliefs that are hateful or exclude or degrade or dehumanize that cannot be tolerated if we were to be tolerant. And sometimes the only response to falsehood is to break fellowship for the sake of fellowship with Christ. And how do you ever know when to do that? And the answer has to be love of God and love of neighbor. Recently, there's a video circulating on Facebook. It's of a pastor in Tennessee who claims that he talked with demons. Now, don't ask me what pastors do in talking to demons. I try not to talk to demons. <laughs> uh, but he said he talked to demons. The demons told him that there were six witches in his church. Have you seen this video? It's been circulating on Facebook. It's wild. It's crazy. It's crazy. This guy's like, we, none of you... you know, I know who you are. Gave me the names, the first and last names of six witches in our church. And uh, commentators have said, well, this is how he'll deal with criticism. You know, if you criticize him, he'll call you out as a demon, as a witch. And it's like, oh, my goodness. And uh, I have to say, I, I look at that and I think to myself, you know, this is what's wrong with freedom of religion. You can have denominations that have no educational requirement. And, and you can have churches with no accountability problem. I don't know that we have to tolerate that. By contrast, a couple of months ago, there was a controversy about the new president of Princeton Seminary, Jonathan Lee Walton. There's a problem with him. Princeton Seminary, one of the oldest Presbyterian seminaries. You know what the problem with him is? He's Baptist. <laughs> a couple of friends of mine uh, have their noses bent out of joint over this. Uh, I would be concerned myself if he didn't understand or appreciate the Reformed tradition. He did his Master's of Divinity at Princeton. He did his Ph.D. in theology at Princeton. He, he's more orthodox than these people who've got their nose bent out of joint. But my own take is we can bear with this. We can be forbearing, not only because the Presbyterian tradition at its best understands that we are not the whole church of Jesus Christ. That's why we say in our creed, I believe in the holy Catholic church. We're not the whole deal. We're not the whole deal. Thank God we're not the whole deal. But there's another more important reason I think we can be forbearing of this, and that is the purpose of Presbyterianism is not to make us better Presbyterians. The purpose of Presbyterianism is to make us better Christians.
so that as in using Paul's letter in his language in his letter to the Corinthians so that we have the same mind and purpose as Jesus Christ we're going to be ordaining and installing elders and deacons today and as you come forward elders and deacons uh, let us remember that forbearance is a Christian virtue and that there are going to be controversies and conflicts and differences if we're a healthy church that's a part of what it means to be a healthy church and let us forbear with each other in love so that we may have